Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. This is our second week of going through the Minor Prophets, and I guess I probably should have mentioned last week. Does anybody know why the Minor Prophets are called the Minor Prophets? Because they're small, yes. It's not because their actual ministry was less important or that these are uh, you know, less important than the major prophets. So the, the, with the Old Testament, or with the Bible in general, you know, there's, different, there's ways that we categorize the books. There's history books. Uh, that would be like you know, Samuel, Chronicles, Judges. There's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books that Moses wrote. Then there's prophecy. Uh, that's what we're studying here. But the prophets even are kind of broken into these major prophets which are much, much longer. You definitely could not cover one of the major prophets, like read the entire thing in one Sunday school class like we did with Obadiah last week. Uh, so all of the books that we're studying in this course are the minor prophets. Um, and a lot of the minor prophets are less familiar to us. I think we don't spend a lot of time. This book is probably the exception. Unlike Obadiah, uh, last week. Does anybody remember what Obadiah is about? Like if you just kind of think big themes, who is Obadiah written to? Edomites. Edomites, yes. So again, at the end of this course, I want us to be able to remember Obadiah was to the Edomites. And who were the Edomites? Sons of Esau. Sons of Esau. Okay, great. So there's this prophecy that was, it was a prophecy of blessing or destruction? Destruction. destruction. So God is saying the Edomites are going to be judged. And why were they going to be judged? Because they were harsh to Israel. Because they were harsh to Israel. Right. They weren't necessarily always like the primary aggressor, but they were the ones that were coming in when Israel was down. They were kind of kicking them when they were down, right? They were plundering them after they, you know, had kind of been attacked by Babylon, all these other things being kind of a thorn in their side. So that's, uh, that is Obadiah. Uh, a lot of us might not have been able to give that recap. I probably couldn't have, before I started getting these lessons, I probably couldn't have given a blow-by-blow blow of Obadiah. But Jonah, most of us pro probably know a lot about Jonah, at least if we've grown up in the church. Our kids probably know about Jonah. Uh, they can probably tell us at least kind of the major points of what happened with Jonah. Uh, it's a familiar story. It's one of those things even from, again, like if you, if you did grow up in the church, you kind of, oh, the guy who got swallowed by the whale. That's, you know who Jonah is because of that kind of crazy miracle that happened. Um, and I think one of the things as Christians is we study these books that might be more familiar to us. One of the dangers is that we can glaze over it and, and think, okay, like I'm familiar with this. Just read through it. We've read it a hundred times. We've heard the story since we were a kid. Uh, so like we think, okay, there might not be a ton there. With some of the other books that are less familiar, probably like our eyes will be opened. You, this might be the first time we've ever really got into Nahum or something like that. But like for Jonah, uh, it's easy to glaze over it because we've heard it before. So the reality, though, is that God has created his scripture to be something that's living and active, it says. You could read it a thousand times and learn something each one of those times. So that's my hope for this morning is that as we study Jonah, uh, we're not going to read major portions of it like we did last week. We'll read some of it. Um, but we'll, we will talk through the story, but really my, my goal is for us to kind of understand 
the book maybe in a little bit of a new light and have a deeper appreciation of what God is teaching us through, uh, you know, through, this, through this passage. So, again, similar to each week, we're going to be talking about first the historical context of the book, what we have, uh, you know, what we know from the passage and from the rest of the scriptures, and then even outside history, and then giving an outline of the book itself, and then talking about Christ and the church, where we see Christ, where we see the church in this book, and then finally, uh, really how, how this applies to us, how we put this into practice today. All right, so let's talk about historical context for a minute. I've got a map here. You'll probably see this graphic maybe every week even. Uh, does anybody know what this is a map of? Yeah, this is Israel. Uh, at the time, really Israel and Judah, but just grand picture, uh, remember, God had brought his people out of Egypt. Eventually they settled in the Promised Land, which is this area here. Kind of everything is in color. They were under judges for a while, and then they wanted a king. And after three kings, there was a civil war. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was kind of a jerk. And he who lived down in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, um, he was from the tribe of Judah. So then the northern, all these other 10 other tribes that were living up north basically said, eh, we don't need, if he's going to treat us like that, we don't need him. We're going to make our own kingdom. So they uh, made this capital of Samaria here. Uh, so when you hear Samaria in Jerusalem, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the, captain, or the capital of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. So that, this will just kind of help us understand terminology. Northern kingdom means Israel. Southern kingdom means Judah. Um, and the, David and the line of David and the line of Christ, that was all through the, the kingdom of Judah. Really, the northern kingdom was kind of defecting. But if you see the star here, what you'll kind of see is that's where, where Jonah was from. It was this city called um, Gath Hefer. And interestingly, can you see... Uh, can you see where, what, what is this by? What lake is this by? Does anybody know? That is the Sea of Galilee. So, do you, interestingly, remember when the Pharisees were coming to Jesus, they said, oh, it's check for yourself that no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. Well, this wasn't exactly true. Uh, maybe this was something you weren't quite aware of, or maybe there was like a conscious overlooking, but uh, Jonah was from the region that Jesus lived in. He was from the north up in Galilee. It's important to understand Jonah was a historical figure. He was not, again, we hear the story so much, we think of him sometimes almost as a myth. The guy who got swallowed by a whale, you know, it's a tall tale. We think of it like that. He was actually a historical figure. In other parts of scripture, he shows up as well. So in Kings, it says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, did not part from the sins of Jeroboam. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, a prophet who is from Gath Hefer. So this is not from the book of Jonah. This is from the history books, but we see that Jonah was bringing God's message to Israel, and then they acted because of it and you know, had battles to change the border. So he was this actual historical prophet 
um, that was prophesying uh, to primarily to the north. And as far as the timeline, now, remember there's two kings. This is a timeline given by the kings of Judah. So it mentioned Jeroboam II. That was the king of Israel. But this is uh, the king of Judah who would have been contemporary to Jonah. So a few big events. And this is something I actually maybe will... My hope is that you'll learn the, the years or at least kind of be familiar with the timeline. Um, 930 BC, that's when the kingdom was divided. Three big events that we kind of think of when we're understanding the context of Israel. The kingdom gets divided, Israel gets captured by Assyria and ransacked by Assyria, and then Judah. So we need to understand eventually, like the more, um, the more we read the prophets and kind of understand where in that timeline, like some prophets might be in between these two events. Some of them might be like this. This was after there was a split kingdom, but, and it was before um, Assyria came to ransack Israel. It was before Babylon came to ransack Judah. But, um, you know, again, big picture, these three big events, we can kind of think in, in terms of those. Was this before uh, the Assyrian captivity? Was it before the Babylonian captivity? So uh, Jonah was prophesying kind of before any of that happened, about 100, more than 100 years before Assyria fall. Um, so even though Jonah was from Israel and was prophesying, it seems like, you know, primarily to Israel through a lot of his ministry. Does anybody know who Jonah, the book of Jonah, is primarily about? What group of people is the primary audience of Jonah in the book of Jonah? Ninevites. Ninevites. Okay, good. So there's actually a couple of the, the prophets that we're going to be studying. Nahum is a lot about Nineveh as well. Uh, but who, who were the Ninevites? Does anybody know? Okay, so it was the capital of Assyria who ended up eventually coming to capture and ransack Israel. So that a captivity where the northern kingdom got plundered, that was by the Assyrians, which, yeah, which had the capital city of Nineveh. It, very good, yeah, Nimrod, 2000 BC. Um, so this was like, even by the time Jonah was going there, the city had been around for 1,200 years. I mean, it was ancient. Yeah, very good. Um, it was also huge. It, it says it's a three-day walk across Nineveh. And we don't necessarily know if that's diameter or circumference. In either case, I mean, that's a very large city, especially by the standards of the day. So that's kind of a picture of when Jonah's prophesying. So I guess what's important with this is to keep in mind, eventually the kingdom of Assyria was going to come and take Israel into captivity. That wasn't going to be for another hundred years from when Jonah was prophesying. So that's still going to happen in the future. All right. So. We'll transition and really kind of talk through the outline of the book of Jonah. Again, you might be familiar with this. You may have read it enough to be able to give this recap, but it's still important to talk through. So two major sections. Jonah is four chapters long, and it's really split <laughs> right down the middle. There's this first series of events, which 
we'll call his commission in disobedience. And then there's the second series of events, which is called his recommission and obedience. So when I say commission, what, what does that mean? Any thoughts on what it means to be commissioned? Yeah, okay. Yes, very good. So he gets this order. He gets marching orders, right? And in this case, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, this is right in the beginning of the book, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So what do you think Jonah does? <laughs> yeah, he does kind of the opposite. So I've always thought, you know, okay, when you hear about a kid, you think like, we know he goes the opposite way of what God tells him. That's what we're told, right? Okay, Tarshish is, uh, so he says, I'm going to go to Tarshish. God's calling me to Nineveh. I'm going to go away to this place called Tarshish. And in my mind, I've always kind of figured like, that would be like if God told me to go to Cleveland and I went to Fort Wayne, okay, you know? A little bit, you know, it's that way, a couple days journey. Tarshish is that way, a couple days journey. That's not actually what the scenario was. Okay, here is where Jonah lived in northern Israel. It says he goes to Joppa to get a boat to go to Tarshish. So Nineveh's right here. Can anybody tell what country that is? Spain. Spain. It's, Tarshish is literally on the Atlantic Ocean. So this is like 2,500 miles, plus the journey down to Joppa. So Jonah, you know, God says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I'm going to go as far as we possibly can go in the opposite direction. I mean, this was literally like, as far as they knew, that was the end of the world. That was as far as the boat could take you, going in the opposite direction um, from Nineveh. So, it's interesting though, when we think about the reason that Jonah disobeyed, uh, it's helpful to understand why he would have disobeyed. So we, we can pretty fairly say it's not because he was scared of the journey. I mean, this would be a much more treacherous journey. You know, 500 miles by land compared to land and sea for thousands of miles. Um, so it wasn't the journey itself. It wasn't because he was adverse to traveling. He doesn't seem to be a coward. Later on, we see he, uh, not to give any spoilers away, but he gets uh, caught in this big storm and he's very willing. He said, hey, throw me over the sea. Like he, he doesn't seem to, which takes a lot of courage. I mean, he's ready to face death. So he's not, it seems to be, not a coward. Um, so if he's not a coward, he's not averse to the journey. Why, what are some reasons, what do you guys think might be some reasons that he was so adverse to doing what God told him to do, where he was like opposite direction? Okay, so he says that, right, he knows God's character. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Okay, so why would that make him, because to me it would be like, oh, that'd be a reason to obey God. Why would that make him want to flee to the opposite end of the earth? He doesn't want to see them 
Yeah. Yes. So, Steve said, is he wants people, he wants these people to experience the wrath of God. He doesn't want them to repent. He, he does not want, he wants to see them come to this fiery end, essentially. Um, he hates the Assyrians. You know, part of this, you would think is probably not completely unfounded. Uh, the, the lands around Israel were ruled by Assyria. They were this constant threat, right? They would be coming and making the other nations in their vicinity pay tribute to them. So it, it kind of makes sense that like they would, there would be some aversion to the Assyrians because they're kind of the bad guys, <laughs> the rulers. But he didn't, you're absolutely right. He says later, I know you are a gracious and merciful God. In other words, he was running away because he knows that if he went to Nineveh and told him to repent, and God, or, and they repented, that God would not destroy them. So that's why, you know, that, and we'll, as we kind of unfold more of how that applies to us, I think there's a lot we can learn from this need to have compassion, even though there, there might be someone that we have as an enemy. Um, but yeah, he disobeys. I did give a spoiler earlier. In the middle of the Mediterranean, he gets into a horrible uh, storm. Everybody's kind of freaking out, throwing cargo, throwing tackle overboard. I mean, they think they're about to die. The whole crew of the ship thinks they're about to die. They come to Jonah, who's sleeping. It's like, hey, what you doing? And he says, well, you know, my God, he had already told him he was running away from God. My God's the God in charge of the sea. So they're like, well, why didn't you tell us that before you, you know, we're running away from this God? So the sea and the dry land, he said. Um, so he said, okay, you can throw me over. If you throw me over, that's why, that's why we're in the storm. Throw me over and you guys will be safe. So sure enough, throw him over. Uh, storm stops. And Jonah comes along and is eaten by, well, I guess not eaten, swallowed by a great fish. Uh, and something that's important to understand too, like I think there's, this is one of the reasons people will say, oh, Jonah's a myth. Like obviously this couldn't, this happen, this wouldn't happen. That's crazy. Uh, fish wouldn't swallow people. This is clearly a miracle. Like it's not, it said God had prepared a great fish. This was a very miraculous occurrence where, you know, what, we don't know what type of fish it was, but big enough and had oxygen supplied in some way to the inside of the stomach enough to sustain him for days. I mean, God worked through this fish, sent this fish to grab him, and then spit him out on dry land. It just says dry land. I, I imagine it's probably, we're not told. I think it would probably be somewhere back over more to where he started, I would think. Like, okay, God's saying, here, you got to go. Um, yeah, I don't think it says where. Um, but interestingly, this is actually kind of where we see, um, see Jonah's faith start to come out. Because when he's in the belly of the fish, he's got this beautiful prayer. It's like a psalm. It is very poetic. And I'd like to, I'd like to read that. Where's AJ? AJ, would you mind reading that again? Thank you.
So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their victims, but I will sacrifice to you the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Thank you. Um, so, you know, it's, like I said, hopefully kind of pick up on some of the, the poetry here. It's very clear that he's taking into, writing into this prayer, into this psalm, what had happened around him. His, your breakers and billows had passed over me. The current engulfed me. You'd cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Seems very figurative, right? Like you can see David writing something like that, talking about being overwhelmed as he's overwhelmed by his enemies and the opposition he has and even his own sin, um, you know, feeling just completely over his head. Probably we felt like this at points. I would think probably, you know, I have. Probably all of us at points have just felt like despairing, like at the end of yourself. Um, water <laughs> encompassed me to the point of death. You know, if we felt like we're drowning, there's just too much for us to handle. And this literally, the interesting thing about this psalm is this actually happened to him, right? Like this was not just figurative. This, these were the literal events that happened to him. God, you know, he got thrown into the sea. The actual waves were passing over him. He was at the point of death. And kind of the, the cool thing, the crazy thing, is you would think that, like, if you're inside, because this was pray, I don't know if I mentioned that. This was, he prayed this from the inside of this belly of the fish. So if you and I are sitting, think of how claustrophobic that would be. In the belly of this fish, you don't know where you are. You don't know what time it is. You don't know if you're about to be digested. You would think that what you'd be praying would be like, scared or please deliver me uh you know it's not it's a song of praise to god for his deliverance you have brought up my life from the pit oh lord my god while i was fainting away i remembered the lord my prayer came to you it seems like being in the belly of a fish would be like your darkest hour right but he is at that point looking and recognizing God worked. And God worked to bring this fish to me and he recognizes that. And he's seeing that God is a compassionate God. And he's praising, you know, he's praising him for that. And he said, when my prayer came to you, or I, when I remember the Lord, my prayer came to you, he's knowing that God heard his prayer. And then even talking about at the end here, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Um, you know, we see here the prayer of a man who has the right view toward God, has the understanding that he was dead in his sin, that he was as good as dead, and God came in and delivered him. So, I, you know, I think that a lot of the book we see just faithless thing after faithless thing on Jonah's end. It's easy to look back and, you know, in retrospect, look at him and be like, oh, that guy was, you know, just a faithless prophet. No, this man had faith. This man knew the character of God. 
So that's kind of the middle part of the book. And then he gets spit out onto dry land. So here's where we are now. He gets regurgitated. And then God tells him, go again to Nineveh. What do you think he does this time? He goes. Yeah, he learned his lesson. He goes to Nineveh. And what do you think happens when he goes and starts preaching there? Yeah. Yep, they repent. So he goes and starts preaching. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. 40 days before they're destroyed. And they repent. It's interesting. In Luke, Jesus says, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Not just his message. The person of Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. So it was not just the fact that he was bringing this message, but it was the fact that he had narrowly escaped death when he tried escaping God's message. And God miraculously brought him back as if from the dead so that he could go and bring that message. And that whole, you know, the story and the person of Jonah being, you know, who he was and running away and being rescued by God, that was what was compelling to the Ninevites. So they realized, okay, this message is real. This dude just got thrown up by a fish to come tell us this message. Like, it's real. Um, so it was, you know, it was a great repentance. They covered themselves in sackcloth and mourned for their sin. They turned from their evil way. It says, the king, all, you know, from the least all the way up to the king, the king says, let us do this that we may turn from our sinful way. And this is the sign of true repentance, right? It's not just feeling bad. It's not just feeling like, oh man, I'm upset that I got caught or that I'm going to get punished now. It's Acknowledging that, acknowledging our sin, mourning over the sin, how grievous it is to God, but then turning from it. And, you know, it was true repentance. At least this generation, this was true repentance. So, uh, yeah. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. So they repent. And God spares the city because they give up their violent ways. And Jonah, as you can probably imagine from what we've kind of been talking about and how he feels about the Ninevites, he is not happy. So he has a second prayer here. He says, unlike the first prayer, which is praising God for his faithfulness, this prayer is angry. He said, please, Lord, was, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So he is upset. He's like, man, I knew you were going to let him repent. That's why I didn't want to go in the first time. Angry. And then... At the end, there's this another rebuke, just like the first rebuke, you know, was him getting thrown into the, the storm and all that. God rebukes him again through this story, which is kind of a weird occurrence, this story of this plant coming up. So Jonah's sitting outside the city, up on a hill or something, looking to, he wants to see a fireball come and psh, destroy the place. And he's waiting for it to happen, and it's hot, 
and God sends a nice shade, a tree, like a bush to cover him. Probably had some nice big leaves or something. And he's happy that he gets some shade because the sun's beating down on his head. Um, and then the next day, there's a little worm that comes up and eats the thing. And again, Jonah is furious. And it ends with this message where God says, you had so much compassion that you're you know, ready to die because you're so mad about this plant dying. But you don't care about this entire city of people. And it shows us where God's heart is. You know, that his, he has compassion for those who repent. And it's about the people. So that is, in a nutshell, what happens in the, in the story of Jonah. So as we think about, okay, we're, we're probably, a lot of us are familiar with that history. How, how, where do we see Christ in Jonah? Three days in the earth. <laughs> the sign of Jonah. Yeah, so you're, jo Jesus actually calls himself a type of Jonah. Uh, right here, the sign of Jonah. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is a wicked generation, for it seeks a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so that's what we just talked about with you know, the person of Jonah becoming the sign, calling them to repentance. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, so Jesus will become a sign to this generation. So he gives them this sign of Jonah. So how did Jonah become a sign? I mean, how did Jesus become a sign? What's the sign of Jonah? I think you hit a, you know, a huge one. Three days in the earth were like the three days in the belly of the fish, right? And then coming back, resurrected, Jesus actually coming back to life, and Jonah kind of figuratively coming back to life since he was, you could say, as good as dead. It was also the preaching, the preaching of repentance. Which was Jesus' ministry, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Condemn, yeah. Because they repented at the preaching. Right. Something greater than Jonah's here. Yeah. So, yeah, Craig was saying that it's, it had to do Jesus' whole ministry of repentance, right? He was saying the same thing. The kingdom, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just like Jonah's saying, repent for, you know, judgment's at hand. Jesus is saying the same thing. And yeah, it's very similar to the way that, G, that Jonah came into this, this city. Hmm. Any other, any other thoughts on how Jesus might have become the sign of Jonah? Both were sent by the Father. Yeah. Great. Yeah, both were commissioned by God, right? There was that same, it was God's doing. He said, go to Jonah. Jesus did the same uh, in fulfilling his Father's um, call. I think there's some other, you know, you can think of, the sacrifice itself, right? There, Jesus, so Jonah was essentially sacrificed. Raging storm, the, the waves of God's wrath about to destroy the thing, and they throw Jonah in to, to quell the raging wrath of God. That's Jesus, right? The raging wrath of God is what we deserve because we are sinners. All of us have broken God's law. That's so clear in Scripture. All of us have broken God's law. We deserve his wrath. And Jesus was sacrificed for us 
to stop the raging storm of God's wrath. I, you know, I think even like the, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and it's, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's reminiscent. It feels the same as like Jonah saying, all the breakers have washed, all your waves and breakers have washed over me. You know, I've, he's, he's the same, <laughs> given up. Um, so, you know, and, and finally, Jesus' death and resurrection brought about salvation for the Gentiles. Just like Jonah's regurgitation, his figurative death and resurrection brought salvation for the Gentiles. So in John, some Greeks want to come talk to Jesus. This is John 12. And Philip and Andrew come to tell Jesus, and what he says is, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what Jesus is saying is, he's going to die, just like a seed dies, goes in the ground, and then comes up and is much more fruitful than the original one. So Jesus is saying he's going to die, and then when he comes back to life, his resurrection is going to be fruit for all the Gentiles, the Greeks. So in that verse I just read, it says the Greeks wanted to see him. The Greeks, Gentiles, that's kind of you know, interchangeable. Non-Jews, right? Something that we, most of us, are probably Gentiles. God grafted us into his kingdom. Um, and that was through the death and resurrection. Before the death and resurrection of Christ, God's people was primarily the physical nation of the Hebrews. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, and he sends his spirit and welcomes in you know, all the Greeks. That's salvation to the Greeks, just like Jonah was salvation to the, to the Gentiles. So, um, okay. We also see some truths here about God's compassion. And in particular, his compassion to the children. This is right at the end of the, of the book. It says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? So, I think, I think when I had read this, Usually, what I had kind of assumed was that what this means is there's 120,000 people living in Nineveh and they're all really dumb to the point they don't know their right from left hand. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't explicitly say children, but this is a euphemism for children. 120,000 people who are still too young to even know their right from their left. So, you know, that, this is consistent. Every commentator out there says that. You know, this is talking about children and animals, those who are still, still young. So, what we see, though, is God is chastising Jonah for not having compassion to children. We learn about God through that, right? What we learn is that God has compassion on children. God has compassion on anybody who listens to the call to repentance, right? But in particular, God has compassion on children. You know, you see Jesus. Think about how Jesus treats children. Don't turn them away. The kingdom of God belongs to such, and these, such as these. It's clear throughout Scripture, you know, not just this passage. It's clear throughout Scripture, through Jesus' ministry, through the Old Testament, that God 
has compassion toward children. And this really should actually have an effect on the way that we act. In this church, we, for instance, baptize children because we believe that they're part of God's kingdom. We believe that they are members of the visible church. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe if we baptize our kids, that saves them, that they automatically go to heaven because they're baptized, but they do get the benefit and all the graces of being part of God's people here on earth. They have the teaching, they have the discipline, the structure. So, you know, that's, you see God work through families. It's so clear in the Old Testament. He has these covenants to Abraham and his children, and it's worked out through the, you know, through this family structure. Children were circumcised, you know, and brought into this, that was the distinctive sign of the people of Israel. They were brought in on, from the day eight, the eighth day of their life, you know, they were children. So we believe that children are part of the church. And there's broader implications to this too. I think very tangible implications. If you're new to the church, you might have noticed that we have a lot of kids running around, more than most churches do, I would say, in average at this time in America. And that's not because we're religious wackos, right? This is not because, it's not some form of asceticism where we think, oh, we need to punish ourselves by having all these kids to become more sanctified. It's not, you know, the Amish who think that they, they reject all sorts of modern developments in science, you know, is because of some misplaced belief that they'll be more sanctified through that. No, at the heart of why we have these kids is we believe that we can build the children, build the kingdom of God through having children. And there's many Christians, especially in a lot of mainstream circles, Baptist backgrounds that don't believe that children are part of God's kingdom until they grow up and, you know, choose God for themselves, right? Um, they don't have that same expectation. So, of course, why would they be motivated to build up God's kingdom through bearing children? Because it's, you know, to them, they might say, at least what their theology says, is, oh, you know, they might not become Christians at all. I never really know. I can't control that until, you know, we'll see how God works out. That's what the theology says. At least I think a lot of Baptists actually do, do raise their children in, in a lot of faith and expectation. But, you know, the for us, we believe, and the Bible teaches over and over, that there's covenants that work out through families and that we can expand the kingdom of God and build his kingdom through raising children who love God. So, um, you know, you might say, <laughs> oh, is this... Is this a stretch to, you know, bring out this whole theology of having big families from this one verse in Jonah? Well, yeah, if that was the only verse in the Bible, maybe. But, you know, the point is that this is just one view where you see God's compassion to children, God's working through families. Um, you know, you see that as a theme throughout Scripture. And this is just, I think, one, one instance where he's really showing how important compassion to children is. So... Um, as we move along and kind of end is on what, what this looks like for us, how we can take what Jonah was taught and put it into practice. Trust in God's plan. God's plan when it came to Jonah sounded awful to him, right? The very first time, go to preach to the Ninevites. He didn't want to do that. So he put his own plan into action. And how'd that work out for him? Well, God's plan was the one that ended up getting followed anyway. 
So, you know, as I think, there's a few parts of this. Part of it is just reassurance that even when things don't turn out the way we want them to, that there's still God's good plan. There's still his work. So I think a lot of the things I've undertaken that haven't <laughs> unfolded like I would want to when I get into it, we see, and I've seen, God at work and come to understand through those times that, man, God is in control and this is actually better than if I, my initial plan had worked out. You know, for, I've probably shared with a lot of you, like we had a, a FedEx contracting business for a while. Um, it was, uh, and there were so many things that seemed out of our control, right? The contract changed significantly. Trucks would break down at like the worst possible time. Just all these things where it's like, man, I feel like, feel like everything's going wrong at points. And there was a lot of praying and saying, God, what are you doing? And it, you know, the prayer was to God, like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. What are you doing right now? And he's, some people have that type of prayer their whole life and will never see exactly what was God was doing till eternity. For us, you know, he's been gracious to us. And looking back, like, I can see all the ways that that has turned out for good and how it was best to make me trust in him and for, you know, all these other reasons to make us trust in him through these hard times. So, you know, part of it is tr when there are hard times, trusting that God is, even if you can't see it, God is good still, and he's turning it good. Um, but then also, part of trusting God's plan is just obeying, simply taking him at his word, doing what he said. Like if Jonah had done that the first time, it would, be, it would have gone so much smoother for him. So, I mean, there's so many practical things, like forgiving people. How hard is it to forgive people? It's hard, right? But like, okay, I'm going to forgive this person even though I don't want to. I'm just going to stop being mad at him, stop holding on to this. I'm going to tithe 10% of my gross income. Ugh, it's hard, right? Like, that's a big chunk of money. 10% um, pre-tax income, but that's because God gives, you know, over and over in Scripture, give me the first fruits, give me, you know, the 10th, the first. Not working on Sunday. I think that's another big one. There are, these, there are these things that we, as Christians, we just need to trust in God. I'm not going to kick back at these, these commands. I'm just going to do it and act in faith and trust your plan. And it will work out because God takes care of his people. I think, you know, another great thing that we see, again, seeing Jonah's faith, pray to God. When you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling beyond yourself, like you have this... Almighty God, who's right there. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. We can pray big stuff, little stuff. And our prayers can be prayers where we're being honest with God, right? Like, God, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. God, I'm, why did you let this happen? I'm, you know, I'm feeling beyond myself. Please just deliver me. I mean, there, not every prayer has to be like, oh, uh, you know, help this person with this health issue. Help this person with this. You know, our, God tells us to come to him with, with all our needs. So we have this incredible access to the throne of God through our prayers. And finally, we should bank on God's mercy. Jonah knows. He says it. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, right? I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were gracious. So that's for us. God is compassionate and gracious to us. So when we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling like, man, my sin is more than I can bear, 
will go to God because he has compassion on those who call to him. We have this beautiful picture of this city that was violent and hated God and didn't know him. And they called out to God and God gave them mercy. You know, how much more for us who are part of his, his people. When we crawl, cry out to God, he will abundantly pardon. And, you know, this is just a theme that we see in this book. We see it through all the prophets, through all the scripture. God forgives those who call to him. It doesn't matter what their background was. It doesn't matter the sins of their youth. You know, God forgives those who call to him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.